The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show by Emma Schoenfellner at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. And she's on the, the Twitter handle at Big Beacon and today we're we've got a couple of folks in the Boston area that are joining us. We've got uh, um, author and education reformer and transformer Tony Wagner. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks. Great to be back. Yeah, it's and uh, and uh, Mark Somerville, who's been uh, a guest uh, commentator and and uh, guest and and is joining us today as uh, as as co-host to uh, to talk to Tony about his new book. Hi, Mark. Welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here, Dave. Yeah, and and Mark, let's just uh, start with uh, you. I want to dig into um, um, Tony's uh, background a little bit more, but um, you've been on the show before, and and people can find out more about you at the on the program page. But uh, since you've been on the show last, what's what's new and exciting and different in the world of uh, engineering education transformation uh, from your perspective? Well, I suppose one thing that I've been having a lot of fun with lately is uh, actually getting back into the classroom a bit and doing engineering education transformation on the ground. So I've been involved in a pretty big uh, curriculum innovation effort here at Owen, and that's uh, that's taking a lot of my time, and it's given me a great opportunity to work with students, which is fun. Well, that's and that's cool to hear both that you're back uh, in in the in the trenches uh, with the students. I'm not sure I like the metaphor of the in the trenches too much, but anyway, back in the trenches with the the students, and also that uh, Olin keeps chugging along and innovating and and uh, and leading the way. Uh, Tony, you, um, I, I think this is uh, your first time on the program, and you've been a high school teacher, a K eight principal, a professor, a change a, a agent, and a nonprofit executive director, and and. Um, Let's go back in the time machine. Uh, we're really interested in what makes people tick and get to interesting points in their lives. Uh, what uh, what experiences in your life led you to this point in your career? <laughs> well, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that recently because I keep getting asked that in interviews. I guess it's a function of my age, perhaps. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, to be very honest, I just really intensely disliked school from the very beginning. 
Yeah. Uh, just hated it. Uh, I was bored out of my mind. Uh, so I graduated from high school, and, and I didn't like college either, it turns out. I dropped out twice. Uh, the second time I dropped out, I became very involved in the civil rights and anti-war movement. And I think the combination of growing up in the 60s, being politically active, and also really finding school to be kind of just drudgery, shaped my interest in education in a perverse sort of way. Uh, I, I, I began to wonder if, if there really wasn't a better way to do things. I ended up at a small experimental Quaker college called Friends World where I studied social problems and traveled to Mexico for a year and studied there. And, and that certainly you know, shaped my thinking about the possibilities for education, as did reading uh, books like uh, the classic uh, Growing Up Absurd, uh, mm-hmm. uh, A.S. Neal, Summerhill, and so on. And so I resolved to be a teacher. But unlike most folks who decide to go into education, my goal as a high school teacher was to really try to figure out a better way to do it, a better way to engage my kids, a, a way to kind of think differently about what are the most important outcomes for education. So those were the kind of formative experiences as an adolescent and as a young adult that kind of led me into the classroom. Well, and, and I love that, and I love it. You, know, you told some of that story in uh, Most Likely to Succeed, too, and I loved uh, reading it there. And, and um, you, know, you know, Mark and I and a whole new engineer talk about unleashing experiences, and I think that's consistent with many of the things that you're talking about. But we're, we're interested in personal unleashing experiences or unleashing mentors. I, at the end of one of your chapters, you had a nice prompt for your, for your readers about the, the mentor in their lives that uh, made a difference. What would, you know, who were the mentors or experiences? And, you know, you've, you've kind of gone your own path. So, you know, what, what gave you the courage to do that? How were you unleashed to, um, to being different from the norm? Well, in the book, I, I tell the story of, of an English teacher in my senior year of high school. He was not my English teacher. He was just another member of the faculty. But I had, by that time, become very interested in writing. I was writing a lot on my own. And I, so I approached this gentleman, and I said, will you teach me to write? He's a very kindly English gentleman. Sad to say, I don't remember his name. I've tried to track him down, but the school I went to is closed, and I can't find any record of it. But what he did was quite remarkable. He said, well, let's, let's meet once a week for a conference, and I'll suggest a, a type of writing for you to try, and then you, you bring me some writing. Hmm. So, you know, one week it would be a childhood reminiscence. Another week it would be just a dialogue or a pure description. Or occasionally it would be like a, a, a movie or a, a, a book, a restaurant review. And so every week I'd, I'd do a piece of writing and I'd bring it to him and he'd critique it. And he'd you know, point to a couple of things where he thought there were some strong points and maybe make only one suggestion. But I worked so much harder for that non-credit course than yes. I had ever worked for any of my other four-credit English classes and, and got so much more from it. And, and the, it was important for two reasons. First, because it, it, it stimulated my 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 interest in and, and some moderate development of skill for writing, of course, but also shaped my thinking about how to teach writing. So when I became a high school English teacher, I refused to fill my students' papers up with red ink. And instead, I used the conferencing method and the writer's workshop approach and mm-hmm. got what, what I thought were dramatically better results. But the, the, later on, and kind of as I was by then a, uh, a school principal and uh, even then a professor, I became aware of the, the work of Ted Sizer and the Coalition of Essential Schools in the 1980s. And as you may recall, 
uh, Sizer really led efforts in the 80s and early 90s to fundamentally reimagine high schools, particularly. Uh, he'd been a dean at the Harvard Ed School and then was actually head of Phillips Andover for a decade. And he established this coalition of schools. And I met some absolutely extraordinary principals, people like Deborah Meyer uh, and, and Larry Rosenstock, who created these truly extraordinary schools. And, and they were also very important influences in shaping my thinking about what's possible in education. Yeah. No, I love love those stories, and it, it's interesting as I sit back and am I'm, I'm starting to get feedback from my career as a professor, and I'm nobody's talking to me about any of the technical stuff, but my graduate students are coming back to me at, well, when you helped us learn how to write, or when you helped us think through writing, and I, I'm and that's and that's the kind of feedback that I'm getting about what was important about the teaching, and so there's there's. There's that in it, and there's there's that in in your in your book as well as uh, the importance of of writing as thinking. Mark, um, what, what how do, how are you reflecting on the things Tony said, and and what would you like to ask him? Yeah, well, I guess I'm I'm sort of interested to turn to some of your more recent writing, uh, Tony. And I know you know I've talked to you and and Ted Dendersmith quite a bit about your your work around the the film, most likely to succeed. Um, and you also obviously have the, the book related to that. So I was, I was wondering if you might talk to us a little bit about kind of how that project came about, what inspired it, and what, what was it like to work on that? Well, some years ago now, I think about four years ago, I got an email kind of over the transom, <laughs> like most, most that I get, from, from Ted, whom I'd never met or heard of. He just said, yeah, I read The Global Achievement Gap, my book from 2008, and he, he wanted to meet. And so we started talking over breakfast, and it just led to a whole morning's conversation. And he immediately sort of expressed interest in, in working together on a movie, which, as you know, later became the movie Most Likely mm-hmm. to Succeed, which premiered at, at the Sundance Film Festival a year ago in January. But along the way, he said, you know, as long as we're making a movie, why don't we do a book? <laughs> so one thing led to another, and um, submitted a a proposal which my current publisher, Scribner, who published uh, the, the last book I wrote by myself, uh, Creating Innovators, uh, was very happy to sort of uh, accept. And so that's how the, uh, the collaboration uh, started. But I have to give all due credit to t- Ted. And even though my name is first on the, on the jacket cover, uh, he, in fact, wrote first drafts of every chapter but one. And uh, many of the more significant and new contributions in the book uh, uh, are really his and as opposed to mine. So he's the one you should probably be talking to at some point if you haven't already. Well, Eden, we'd love to get Ted on the on the show. We haven't had him on the show, and um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work on doing that. But, uh, but uh, you know, writing, writing is ultimately about learning. I you know, I, I naively in my first writing project said, "Oh, I, I know what I'm going to write," and then it ended up being it had, and my first book ended up being this this journey into learning and filling in the gaps of what I didn't know, and also setting the agenda for what I wanted to work on next. and And so, most writing projects are like that. I'm guess I'm curious what um, you've written about education reform. You just said that uh, there were original contributions for Ted. What what surprised you the most in in the writing of uh, most likely to succeed. Well, actually, I think for me the greatest surprise has been in the response. Uh, 
the, the style of Most Likely to Succeed, the writing style is different than and my other books. And Ted influenced that, and I had a great deal of fun with it, not worrying so much about being a more kind of thoughtful academic, we could be a little bit more outrageous than I might otherwise have been at an earlier point in my career. And, you know, I was frankly a little worried about that. Um, but uh, apparently people seem to enjoy this thoroughly. It's kind of a more refreshing style, if you put it uh, in a certain way. I mean, it, I think it's certainly well written, but it's, I think it's more declarative in its approach a little less circumspect, perhaps. And the response has been incredibly enthusiastic. I think people are, are looking for a kind of manifestos for education yep. in the 21st century. And, yep. and that's m- maybe what has surprised me the most about the response. Yeah, Mark. You talked about uh, manifestos for education in the 21st century, and that's really one of the things that um, sort of you know, struck me and conversations that we've had and also in both the movie and the, the book is the sort of extent to which uh, we are in the 21st century and the history of education is, is a part of the problem. So I wonder if you could reflect for us a little bit about the ways in which we haven't actually entered the 21st century yet from an educational perspective. How are we yeah. stuck in the past? Well, I think that's, that's obviously something we, we dwell on quite a bit in, in uh, most likely to see both the book and the movie. Not many people realize that the heart of our education system uh, was developed by the so-called Committee of Ten in 1893. Now, this is a group of predominantly uh, sort of uh, industrialists and college presidents led by none other than George Eliot from Harvard, uh, who were appalled at the... uh, the chaos of the high school curriculum all over America and wanted to produce some order, some orderliness to it all. And so um, over a period of time, they developed something called Carnegie units. Now, Carnegie units are measures of seat time served, and they define very specifically the kinds of topics, subjects, if you will, that you should serve your seat time in in order to get a high school diploma. So for more than 100 years, almost 125 years now, we have defined a high school diploma as a certificate of seat time served. Now, who dictated what seat time you should serve in? Who dictated those subjects? Well, of course, colleges did, right? Colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. So in effect, they were imposing their standard of what they thought a good education should look like. Well, maybe that was a a good thing at the dawn of the industrial era when we were moving towards standardization and 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 uh, kind of assembly lines in all sorts of ways. Um, but that time has passed. We no longer have an yes. industrial economy. We no longer even have what people commonly refer to as a knowledge economy. Yep. That term was coined by Peter Drucker in 1959. Knowledge today has been commoditized. It's free growing exponentially, changing constantly on every Internet-connected device. And so it's been commoditized. The world no longer cares how much our graduates know because Google knows everything. What the world cares about is what they can do with what they know because, in fact, we've evolved to an innovation economy, an innovation era, which demands fundamentally different skills for us, not just in work, but also, I think, as active and informed citizens and as lifelong learners. Yeah. So I, and, and, and of course, you know, so many of many of 
declared that we're in this innovation or creativity era, you know, the Richard Florida, the rise of the creative class and Dan Pink, we need a whole new mind and, and uh, the world is flat. And so there's widespread agreement about, about that, that we're in this different place, but it seems as though, um, we have we're having a really hard time getting unstuck uh, unstuck from that and and this kind of serving time um, you know seat time served uh, idea that we're that we're stuck with uh, and and that you're that you're learning you're obedient to this set of of things that was decided uh, you know in in 1893 is still stuck with us why, what's what's the problem with that how why are we so stuck. Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I think, first of all, um, teachers teach in the ways that they've been taught because that's all they know. Parents want schools to look like the ones they went to or the ones they wish they'd gone to. And finally, people who make our education policies are often have graduated from so-called good schools and were good students, and so that's what they think goodness is. It's what they experienced. So you have a system that is, to begin with, is risk-averse, okay? I mean, the kinds of folks who go into education typically are not your risk-takers. They're not your innovators. Other industries attract those kinds of people far more readily. Uh, education training then reinforces that kind of risk-aversion uh, through a kind of a compliance mentality. So that's the kind of culture of education and education policy-making on the one hand. And on the other hand, Innovation demands that there be an investment in R&D, research and development. You, you, you folks know this really well, I think, from the engineering yes. perspective. Well, there has been no investment in educational R&D, and so we have no new models. And you can't innovate without kind of that kind of R&D, trial and error, uh, and new models being developed. Now, fortunately, in the last decade or so, that's begun to change. Uh, as you know, uh, all, all very well from the Olin experience, that there are beginning to be entirely new models of, of college education, university and engineering education, as well as new models at the high school level. And I think that's what's needed to begin to kind of unlock the frozen circumstances at a certain level. You've got to be able to, you know, look at new approaches, not just in a book, but you've got to see it, smell it, touch it, and taste it. That's why we made the movie most likely to succeed, to show people how much better a high school really could become. Then I think we really need to take a long, hard look at our basic assumptions about the outcomes of education. But it does begin with, from my point of view, an investment in R&D and the creation of new models that can be existence proofs, if you will, of better approaches. Yeah, and your book's got a terrific list of, of, of many of these uh, new models, and, and uh, we can explore those. I think we're going to take a little bit of a break, but after the break, I want to continue diving into uh, diagnosing the problem and understand a little bit better um, how, we, uh, how we look at the, the purposes and outcomes and, and the things that we do in education now and, and what are some of the difficulties with, with uh, what we're, we're doing now. We'll, we'll do that after the break. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, Tony, Tony Wagner and, and uh, co-host Mark Somerville. And in the next segment, we want to dive into diagnosing the problem of education a little bit more.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy. With co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass, Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Get get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not for just for engineers anymore. And uh, we've we've run through the first uh, the 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 first uh, printing and the second printing's coming along, but there's still still a few copies at Amazon.com. So welcome back. Uh, we've got uh, Tony Wagner and Mark Summer. Uh, Somerville uh, with us. We're talking. Uh, we're we're talking about uh, new book and and movie most likely to succeed with uh, Tony Mark. Uh, uh, what yeah, uh, what sticks things. in your mind from that first uh, segment? Yeah, we were we were just talking about the sort of historical um, roots as far as where we are with respect to education and the Carnegie Unit and so on. And I, I think there's there's an interesting topic around around purpose that's certainly raised in the in the book about what the purpose of education is. So Tony, can you sort of reflect for us about what the stated purpose of education is? Well, I think there are purposes plural, and they've been influenced, uh, I think, through history. Uh, first and foremost, by economics, and I, I think yep. uh, at the dawn of the industrial era, as we were discussing earlier, there was a kind of a standardization. Uh, assembly line approach to manufacturing and that required people who had kind of minimal skills, the skills you needed for very basic citizenship, literacy, numeracy, 
uh, at the at the most basic level, but also people who were punctual, who were orderly, uh, who were compliant, and that's what we created with our education system. And to a large extent, we still create those kinds of outcomes. They're influenced in part by um, expect, kind of minimal expectations for citizenship, but I think much more fundamentally by our modes of production. And then as we move towards more knowledge work, I think uh, the pressures have increased on schools to produce young people who know a lot of stuff, uh, who have just kind of memorized increasing amounts of material. Basic skills were no longer an- enough. Uh, you, you wanted people who uh, maybe had had some college, but who had access to a lot of knowledge, and more importantly, who knew how to work with knowledge. Because that's what the knowledge economy means. That's a knowledge worker is somebody who knows how to work with knowledge, but not create any new knowledge. And that—that's the real challenge with the innovation here. I think um, it's to find. You know, there are two definitions that I've sort of come to about innovation. Um, I'd be curious to know if if yours are, are similar or different. Uh, one kind of innovator is someone who brings new possibilities to life. Think of Steve Jobs. And I think that's more a matter of extraordinary talent and a particular time in history converging. And it's more probably a matter of nature than nurture. Mm -hmm. But then there's another kind of innovator, and that's someone who is a creative problem solver. And I would argue that that capability, number one, is at least as important as the, the, the kind of capacity to bring new possibilities to life. It is the coin of realm in the innovation era, whether you're a for-profit, non-profit, first world, third world, it doesn't matter. You want to work with people who can solve problems creatively. You can solve problems without creativity, no innovation. You can be very creative but not know how to apply it to the problem, to solutions, and also not be particularly innovative. Though, to me, what's so interesting about the capability of creative problem solving is that we're born with it. We are born curious, creative, imaginative. That is the human DNA. The average five-year-old asks 100 questions a day, and most kindergartners think of themselves as artists. But then something happens. We call it school. Those qualities are all too often schooled out of us in the process of creating assembly line workers or knowledge workers who don't have to create anything. So I think... The, the most fundamental challenge is to understand, number one, that the innovation era demands entirely new capabilities and favors new skills, the skills that cannot be replicated by a computer or any other kind of machine. And number two, I think it's very important for people to understand that the skills for work, for learning, and for citizenship have converged in the 21st century. They are the same skills. Too often people complain about my work that I seem to only want to prepare people for the economy, not understanding that the fundamental capabilities, the ability to think critically, ask good questions, the ability to communicate effectively, the ability to collaborate, and of course creative problem solving, those four C's plus you know, a strong moral character, are the same things you need for work, for learning, and for citizenship in the 21st century. There is no you, difference. You know, but in some ways, this is, uh, this is back to the future. I mean, de Tocqueville noticed the, the, the United States, as contrasted with France, was uh, a, a nation of people who were 
in, in prepared to be on juries and, and do jury duty and, and to take up uh, responsibility in, in their communities in a way that somehow we've, we've uh, it, it seems as maybe we've lost. And you, you comment, you actually commented on, uh, in, in the book, you comment about uh, jury duty in, in particular, but but it seems like it's not. It's not like we didn't have that. It seems we we've yeah. had some of that back in the back in the eighteen hundreds. People on the frontier didn't have all the stuff that we now had. They had to kind of figure things out. They were in many ways creative problem finders and solvers. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think it, you know through history since the Greeks there has been a certain emphasis on the development of character and the development of yeah. citizenship. But I, the problem I believe in the in the twentieth century is that we have allowed our education systems to be taken over by our testing and accountability systems. Mm. So what gets tested is all that gets taught. So you look at the SATs, which are required for admission to most colleges. Where is the test for citizenship? Where is the test for character? They don't exist. So if they're not tested, increasingly the problem because of very high stakes, whether it's college admissions or state accountability requirements, if it's not tested, it's not taught. If it's not required for college or required for state accountability or to keep your job as a teacher, you're not going to spend time teaching it because you can't afford it. And so I think as we look at the kind of devolution of uh, education in the 20th and 21st century, we have to blame uh, the systems we're using to, quote, measure knowledge, unquote. You know, it's fascinating to me that uh, in, for much of the 20th century, we've said the only thing that can be considered objective is what can be pushed through a scantron, scored by a computer. Mm-hmm. Human beings are subjective, right? So you have companies like Google, for example, who used to, as you probably know, only hire kids from Ivy League schools, and they would only interview the kids with the very best GPAs and test scores. Objectively, they had to be the smartest, right? Because that's what the computer said. Well, little problem. Long comes Laszlo Bach, senior VP of people operations, and he analyzes the data and discovers that these indices are, quote, worthless as predictors, unquote. His words, not mine. Goes on to say the skills you need to succeed in a competitive academic environment and everything they've been measuring have absolutely no relationship to the skills you need to succeed at Google. And so today, 15% of Google's new hires don't have BA degrees and the word college does not even appear on their job website. They no longer even ask for a transcript, let alone your test scores. Because they've discovered that a transcript tells them absolutely nothing about what a young person can do, only about seat time served. So we're beginning, I think, to understand that collective human judgment informed by evidence, which is how Google now does its hiring, is in fact a far better uh, way of measuring the things that matter most. And I hope we're beginning to move away from uh, these very standardized, computer-score-driven methodologies for assessing education outcomes. So, Tony, I guess I'm I'm curious whether um, your feeling is that we should be optimistic or pessimistic. And let me let me sort of fill in what I'm where I'm coming from in saying that. I think, you know, if I go back to the the sort of historical analysis, there's a chunk 
that has to do with the education system responding to the needs of the industrial era, right? And then the and then the education system responded to the needs of the knowledge era. Is it the case that there's something different now that will make the education system not respond to the needs of the of the innovation era, or is it simply that it's it's slower to respond than we'd like it to, and we we have reason to be optimistic, but it we also have reason to be engaged in making that change happen? Well, it's a great question and an important one, and I frankly have mixed views on this. On the one hand, I see companies like Google, and it's it's not just Google. I was in Ho Chi Minh City two years ago at the invitation of Deloitte, the accounting and consulting firm, to speak with area business leaders, had lunch with the CEO, who quite spontaneously said, you know, we used to hire the best students from our best universities, but she said, it turns out they didn't work out so well. So now Deloitte... Uh, puts good through, students through a uh, summer boot camp to see how they solve problems collaboratively, much like the Olin final admissions process. And then I just read the, the renowned publisher in Great Britain, Penguin, has just declared that a college degree is no longer a requirement for a job at Penguin because a college degree doesn't bear a relationship to the skills they need. So I see a trend in in the world of work away from what I would call false credentials and more towards trying to assess genuine competencies away from seat time served, more towards skills. But the problem is I do not yet see very many business leaders being articulate about what are the outcomes that matter most and being willing to engage. In the past, you had, I mean, we got accountability 1.0. Most people don't realize this. We got accountability 1.0 in the late 80s and 90s because of the direct concern and involvement of business leaders. People like Lou Gerstner, chairman of CEO of IBM, David Kearns from Xerox, uh, did a national summit on education in the mid-90s, and, and all this business leaders came up. CEOs, governors, and, and they created something called the Standards Movement, which became the No Child Left Behind Movement, because they were directly involved. They were concerned that their knowledge workers didn't know enough back then. And uh, I don't see today's business leaders willing to invest and engage in that way, and I don't see them being being as articulate about our needs. I mean, so uh, Dennis Doyle and David Kearns wrote this very influential book in the late 80s called Winning the Brain Race. It laid out the case for changes in the nature of work requiring changes in education. There's been no equivalent manifesto for the 21st century that I've seen. And so I, I worry that unless and until we have uh, uh, leadership from an involvement of um, the, the, the leadership in our economy and, and sort of in dialogue with our policymakers, we're not going to see change because there's too much inertia. That's a, you know, I thought Mark's question was great. I, your answer is very interesting. I, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if there isn't something qualitatively different here. I, you know, so to go from um, you know, wanting uh, you know, seat time served to knowing more is, is sort of an... Um, it's a difference in kind. Um, um, it's, no, it's actually a different. It's actually just a difference in scale. And and to, but the the kind of thing that we're talking we're talking about going from rational requirements and you know sitting in class for a certain amount of time or or being tested on knowing this 
that's all cognitive. And what we're talking about is a revolution in both culture and emotion. And uh, that's a that's a different kettle of fish. Um, that we're talking about something, uh, and especially. Uh, and I would argue there's a gender component to this, that it, that that's a really hard thing to accept that we've got to actually be dealing with uh, with passions and and uh, and uh, emotion and having fun, uh, you know, play, you know, uh, you know, play in purpose and so forth, that we need to be talking about those variables. It's a com- kind of a different set of variables that we have real hard time talking about. I you think, think you're right. And I think, again, part of the problem is that uh, the leaders who may intuitively understand what's going on, the Laszlo box of the world, uh, are not engaged in the education space and have not articulated in a clear way what it is that is, is needed and that's truly important. And as you say, because some of the things that they might say, they, they may fear they will be scoffed at. The idea that play, passion, and purpose are important as a part of the development of intrinsic motivation, that as you both point out in your book, yeah. uh, the intrinsic motivation is being really central to the whole process of learning and innovation, and, and that those qualities cannot be measured by a computer. Uh, that, you know, I'm, what I, I like to say is that academic knowledge still matters, but skills matter more, yeah. and motivation matters most. And in the innovation era, particularly, because if you're self-motivated, you will continuously acquire new content knowledge and new skills. Well, the one thing we refuse to talk about in education is motivation. We don't want to talk about the fact that the kinds of tests we give kids today, the kinds of homework we give kids today, the kinds of stuff they get lectured at all day is entirely uh, unmotivating. It doesn't stimulate their curiosity, creativity, imagination. Uh, it doesn't stimulate them in most cases to ask good questions. Yet, you know, we keep doing it because we just ignore the fact that we're actually turning kids off to school. And we assume that, you know, boredom is, well, that's just part of the process. Yes, bored, school can be boring sometimes. I was bored in school, too, sometimes. We ignore that, that symptom and, and, and disregard it, I think, at our peril. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, you know, I think this is a is a really important point. Be and what you said. I think there's a there is a shame comment. I think people are ashamed once they see what it is that. 21st education is about at its core. We use all kinds of buzzwords. We say experiential learning. Well, that's not a bad buzzword, but it's, it hides the play, passion, and purpose. It hides, it, it hides the fun. It, it hides the essential emotional variables. We talk about active learning. Again, we use a rational term to cover up and hide what is essentially an emotional phenomenon. And we just, we just can't even bring ourselves to talk about it. Mark and I had trouble with the book when we, when we got to the core and we started talking about about words like trust and courage, we knew they were the right words, but we were worried that our colleagues would laugh at us. Yeah, I think that's right. Because, again, it doesn't scantron. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Did you want to go to a break at this point? Or you... No, we've got, a, we've got a couple of minutes before oh, the okay, break sorry. comes. I was, I was, I was no, no worries. the clock here. I apologize. No, 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 well, now it's a minute. Yeah. We, got a, we, got a, we got a minute. You're going to have the last word, and then we'll go to the break. Well, Dave, uh, uh, or Tony, I'll ask you one, one last question then in this sort of uh, space of what the problem is, and that, that relates to something that's you know, dear, near and dear to both Dave and 
Dave and me, which is the sort of higher education space. You know, what's what's your sense of the the situation right now in higher education, particularly in the U.S. For a long time, it's been uh, sort of the the pride of the pride of the world. Uh, so, what how is yeah. how is higher education looking to you right now in the U.S.? Well, I I think there are a number of trends that um, are disturbing. Uh, first of all, as we know, uh, higher education costs have continued to increase disproportionate to median family income. In fact, they've gone in opposite directions, median family income having declined in the last decade. So I think more and more Americans are saying, well, uh, is this a wise investment? I mean, you've got uh, uh, the average um, starting salary of someone with a BA degree also having declined while that person's debt has increased enormously. Uh, but the conflicting trend is that we, we seem to give the message to all young kids that, first of all, you have to go to college. You know, all kids college ready has been the mantra of policymakers for at least the last five years. Our new curriculum, the common, so-called common core, is explicitly a college preparatory curriculum. So we're doing away with, um, in so many places, uh, career technical education is not an option for kids. There are very, very few high schools that offer that anymore. It's all college prep. Um, we don't, as a, as, a, as a culture, seem to value people who work with blue collars, who work with their hands. Yeah. And so every parent wants their kid to go get a BA and have a white-collar job, not realizing that those are the jobs that are going to be kind of offshore or automated far more quickly than the job of a plumber or an electrician or a mechanic and whose jobs frequently are earning six figures. So I worry that on the one hand we're making college less relevant, less affordable, but on the one hand, on the other hand, more necessary. So it's like we've got these kids caught in a trap. We're telling them they've got to go to college, but you can't afford it, and you're not going to likely get a decent-paying job out of college. On the other hand, there is no other option. Yeah. Hold that thought, and I, I think we need to talk a little bit about uh, what's the vision for a future that makes a little bit more sense than the, what we've gotten ourselves into. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Tony Wagner, and uh, we've got uh, uh, Mark Somerville as co-host with us today. And, and uh, in the next segment, we want to understand a new vision, uh, Tony's new vision for uh, education and ways to get there. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And uh, get the coaching and deep faculty development and training. You need to transform uh, higher education at your school at www.3joy.com. And uh, in in the last segment, we were diagnosing the problem. Um, I think in this segment, we need to talk about what's the solution, Mark. Yeah, so Tony, I was I was really interested in the in the, the the extent to which you talk both about reframing the problem as well as as coming up with a new vision. So I was curious if you could actually riff a little bit on both of those things. If we reframe the problem and we say no, actually the problem is what is the what is that reframing, and then what's the what's the vision look like in response to that reframing? Well, the way people frame the education problem is one of failure and reform. Our mm. schools are failing and need reforming. Uh, the goal being to make our existing system incrementally better. Uh, my view is that our education system is obsolete and needs reimagining. Uh, it's a very, very different framing of the problem. Uh, in terms of solution, again, I, you know, I, 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 as we think about reimagining education, I, I'd start with what should a high school diploma be? And I don't think it should be the certificate of seat time served that it is today or the collection of AP credits and so on, I think it should be a certificate of mastery. I think we should more clearly define the skills that matter most for work, learning, and citizenship in the 21st century and the performance standards that should accompany those skills. So if we start with, say, the four C's, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, creative problem solving. Each one of those needs to have performance standards with them uh, that help us define what is the level of critical thinking we would expect for a student who, who will be work, citizenship, and college ready. What, 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 what does that look like? Uh, and, and what is the kind of evidence we can look for in the work of a student? And how, how best do we assess that? Uh, and then the next step is that as you think about core competencies, you suddenly begin to understand that students can show mastery of those competencies in very different ways. Yes. Um, they, can, they can do a wide variety of internships, uh, of, of, of kind of learning through uh, work and, and, and visits to other countries and cultures. And so suddenly you free education from the confines of a building and from the confines of a calendar. It can happen anywhere, anytime, 24-7. And the whole idea is that students would keep a digital portfolio where they would begin to develop evidence of mastery of these skills. Now, I want to be also very, very clear. I'm not saying this is skills versus academic content. The only way you develop critical thinking is through engagement 
with rich and challenging academic content. And what's gone before us matters, and young people need to have a sense of that. So while we are thinking about a curriculum that's more competency-based, we have to also think carefully about what, what is the foundational knowledge that students should have, when should they get it, how should they get it. Uh, you know, instead of sort of filling every bucket to overflowing, which we do today, well, we're going to give you knowledge in case you might need it yeah. you know, someday, and it's forgotten the day after the test, as we well know. Let's really kind of pare it down and think, we'll take science, for example. Must every student study biology, chemistry, physics, or ought they first and foremost to understand the scientific method and what are some of the most important uh, elements of science today in our, in our daily lives. Why, for example, ought we to require chemistry but not ecology? I'd why, like to just... why do most students graduate knowing absolutely nothing about climate change? Yeah. I'd like to ju just jump in here. We have a listener just wrote in a question related to what you're talking about right now. So a listener, Dan Heck, just uh, wrote in and, and asked, are there competency-based models available for high school and K-12? I generally like uh, DePaul's uh, School for Le New Learning for Adults. Are there, are there models like that that people are working on? Yeah, there's, there's several that I, I point to in the book, most likely to succeed. One is the Deeper Learning Initiative. Go to Deeper Learning, the number four, and then all.org, and you find a list of, of 10 networks of schools comprising more than 500 schools, K-12, that are very focused on these deeper learning core competencies. Uh, EdLeader21 is a consortium of school districts, edleader21.com, working on teach, how to teach and assess what I call the four C's that I just mentioned earlier, critical thinking, collaboration, communication, creative problem solving. So we do see movements in these directions and new curricula being written uh, um, kind of all of the time. Yeah, so we have this sense of, you know, so that there's this re-envisioning of, of um, some of the content and the competencies and, and the ways to assess. But it, towards the end of the book, you're, you're, you're pretty clear that the most damaging aspect of what we're doing today is to um, the sense of will or motivation of the, yeah. the students. And so how, um, how do we... How do we bring that? How do we bring that back? How do we, you know, so we basically, you know, we're basically going from obedience-based education of shut up, sit down, and 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 serve your time and learn this stuff, to become, you know, we say now we want you to, oh yes, we're serious. We'd like you to be a lifelong learner. How do how do we how do we do that? It 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 sort of sounds like a, an emphasis on things like assessment uh, doesn't necessarily get us to those to those variables. Well, I think, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, too, because I think this is an incredibly important topic. Yeah. But I would begin with curiosity. Yeah. You know, um, as I mentioned, we are, as a human species, born curious, creative, and imaginative. Uh, kids, as, as youngsters growing up, you know, have all kinds of questions. But increasingly, there are questions that are ignored. There are questions that are not answered. I mean, I've seen this countless times in classes where a teacher will be talking about something, a student will ask a question, she will say, I'm sorry, we don't have time for that, or that's off topic. And so yes. what does a child learn? They learn to not ask questions anymore. They yeah. learn to not be curious. What if instead, and this is just a very modest proposal any teacher can do in any classroom at any level, what if instead we said, all right, we'd like you students to keep a question journal 
Mm. Just write down all the questions that occur to you in the course of a day or course of a week. And then once every two weeks, I'm going to meet with each one of you individually. And I want you to maybe take one or two questions that, you, that have occurred to you in the last week, two weeks, as you read back through this. And let's talk about, all right, how are you going to pursue this? How are you going to learn more about this? So instead of saying curiosity is a deficit in the conventional classrooms today, it's something that gets in the way of learning the required content, let's put it back at the center of a student's experience of learning. Yeah, Tony, I, l- I love that idea, and one of the things I love about that idea is the, is the extent to which it is something that any teacher can, can do today. Um, at the same time, it seems like a lot of the changes that we're talking about are, are big changes, right? These are not sort of incremental changes. Um, and to get to that kind of big change, we, we need some kind of consensus or at least some, some sort of theory of change for how we get from where we are today to what that, what that future looks like. So what, what are your sort of thoughts with regard to a theory of change that will, that will help us get there? Uh, well, I think it's bottom-up, top-down, and sideways. <laughs> uh, bottom-up, I think, is helping people at, at, at a very grassroots level, at the community level, to really understand a changing world, because that's where it all starts. How is the world different than the one uh, we grew up in? Uh, and then, and what, and what the kids need to thrive in this new world. So you engage people in these larger questions, and that's what the purpose of our, our movie, and to some extent our book, is, is trying to fulfill. But Ted Dintersmith, as you may know, is going all over the country to 50 yep. states to show that film. You go, folks can go to MTLS, which is short for most likely to succeed, mtlsfilm.org, to find out where the screenings are and, and how to sponsor one. Uh, and so he's had a tremendous response in, in doing that. And the screenings are now happening all over the country. And they're not just a film showing. They're a, a provocation for a conversation. What do we want for our kids in this school today? And what yeah. can we do to move towards that, that vision and that aspiration? So that's the bottom up. Uh, the top-down is really, as I suggested earlier, I think uh, business leaders, policymakers, and uh, uh, opinion leaders need to start a different conversation about outcomes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, well, can you imagine what a different world we might begin to have if, say, the Bill Gateses and, and um, Zuckerbergs of the world were to take out a full-page ad in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times tomorrow saying, in effect, our education system is not failing. It does not, we don't need a reformation of the old model. Our education system is obsolete and needs reimagining, and here are the core competencies that matter most. Can you imagine what a different conversation might begin to happen if we had that kind of leadership from the top? And then finally, from a sideways point of view, what I'm really talking about is educators engaging in their own R&D. You know, um, every school has a professional development budget, but none of them have an R&D budget. Well, what if you flipped it? What if you said our professional development budget is going to suddenly be an innovation fund to which teams of teachers can apply to learn new things, learn new skills, and most importantly, create new courses or maybe even entirely new laboratory schools? So these are some of the ways in which um, I see change already beginning to happen, and uh, I find that some reason for cautious optimism. Yeah, I, and I, I think that I really like you know the top down, bottom up, and and a colleague of mine uh, was at Illinois, uh, Joel Kutcher Gershenfeld, uh, 
talked about lateral alignment and middle out that that maybe in in you know we think hierarchically up and down an organization but the most important connections in in changing things are across as you were saying, across educators, but not just educators, all stakeholders, uh, all stakeholders who are sort of get it and understand that uh, these changes are important, they're happening now, and and helping them come about that that it's that kind of that that kind of connections that are hard to make and that we don't have super good models for. Uh, we, we've got just about uh, half a minute uh, left, Tony, and I'd like to give you about um, thirty seconds to tell our listeners anything that you'd like them them to know about uh, about your work and and how to get a hold of you. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the MTLSFILM dot org website is a great resource for additional information, but most importantly, to learn more about this film as well as the book and and how to sponsor showings. Um, My own website, TonyWagner.com, has a lot of free resources, videos, articles that can be downloaded for free and so on. And then I do try to tweet out new uh, resources as I find them. And my my Twitter handle is at DrTonyWagner.com. So those are some of the ways in which people can be in touch with me and, and continue to learn more as I learn more. Great, Tony, and thank you. I really appreciate uh, you joining Mark and me today, and, and uh, folks that want to get a hold of Mark uh, can get a hold of him uh, off the uh, Olin uh, website at olin.edu. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio Transforming Higher Education with our special uh, guest, Tony Wagner, and special co-host, Mark Somerville. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.